Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Our guest this week is Dan Mikulskis. Dan is an investment partner at Lane Clark and Peacock, or LCP. He's also the co-host of a very good podcast called Investment Uncut. He couples this work with a fortnightly newsletter with commentary on what has been happening in markets and around the world, which you can subscribe through LinkedIn. Dan is also particularly well-versed with the LDI, or liability-driven investment crisis, and why it caught the pension funds off guard. It can be a technical topic, so if you'd like to understand more of what's happened, check out his Twitter account, at Dan Mikulskis. In this episode, Andrew Williams and Juan Torres cover topics including what can be learned from co-hosting podcasts, which can then be applied to the decision-making process, accounting for own biases when meeting fund managers, how Dan goes about helping clients deal with uncertainty, building of models, what makes a good model, and when, if at all, one should overrule those models with qualitative insights, and finally, how to learn the right lessons from your process and not learn the wrong lessons. Enjoy! Dan Mikulskis, welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? Really good. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, and here in your podcast studio as well. I was super excited to, to be here today. So, so thank you. Could you provide our listeners with a little bit of your background and an introduction? Yes. So I'm an investment consultant. So I advise um, asset owners, mainly large pension schemes and other asset owners on, on their investments, everything from yeah, the strategy, the amount of risk they're taking, different asset classes, and of course, choosing managers and helping them fulfill their regulatory reporting requirements, those sort of things. Um, work with a number of sort of, of asset owners. I'm a partner at LCP in, the, in their investment practice. And I've broadly done that for about, about 20 years of my career. I started my career at Mercer. I um, spent a bit of time at Reddington as well, but really most of that, I've been um, an investment consultant advising pension schemes and other asset owners across their, across their investments. You have left out something very important to us, and it's the fact that you also have a podcast. Can yes. you tell us everything about that podcast? <laughs> I am a podcaster as well, yes. Uh, we started our podcast, I think, in January 2020. Uh, it's called Investment Uncut. You can find it on all the good podcast platforms. Um, and um, myself and a colleague of mine, Mary, we interview interesting guests each week, um, ranging from colleagues to external people around the industry. Uh, and we've had a lot of great conversations, and um, as I'm sure, I'm sure you have as well, learned a lot about podcasting and the art of good conversations and questions and those sort of things. So yeah, it's been really good. Before coming to the studio, you were telling us how the podcast, um, you have tried to approach your the nature of your guests from like different angles. So yeah. w- what are you exactly trying to 
um, go for when you are thinking about the guests? Yeah, it's you know, it's a, it's a constant experimentation. I think. I mean, one thing I was adamant about when we launched it is I, I do think you have to kind of form a really clear idea of your audience. Even if you're wrong, you got to form a theory of your audience and what they want, and try and go with that. Because if you're not careful, you can be can be something that's kind of um, doesn't really work for anyone. But what we've ended up settling on is kind of a split between some guests who are focusing on out and out investment. Um, research and investment ideas, and um, people like, say, Michael Moberson or Ludovic Fallipu, something like that. Other guests who are focusing more on the art of communicating about investments. So, for example, a great episode on storytelling with Stacey Havener, we were talking about that, and, and others from the media and journalists who cover that side of it, which I think is increasingly important. And then also covering the more kind of behavioral, sort of meta kind of psychological side of investing as well. And that's, we sort of settled on that as a, a rough split, and that seems to kind of broadly work, I think, for our audience. We've had some overlap in terms of guests. Yes. Uh, you yeah. had Michael Mabosin, who is yeah. absolutely fantastic. You had Joe Wiggins. Yeah. He's absolutely, absolutely fantastic as well. He is about to come out with his own book. He actually hosted, he was not only a guest, but he actually hosted or helped us host an episode, uh, which was fantastic. And thanks to your podcast, we are now going to interview Stacey at some point in the future, and we are really looking forward to it. The other thing that I think that you have left out from your very brief intro is the fact that you have this newsletter, which is quite popular on LinkedIn. What is that about? Yes. So um, I, I write a fortnightly markets newsletter. I, I had an idea at the start of the year to do it. Um, I launched it on LinkedIn. And, and yeah, this is in January 2022. I launched it. And basically, the initial idea was have a little bit of a laugh at the expense of market forecasters, post a little, poke a little bit of fun, at, uh, harmless fun at um, market forecasters and uh, try and have some real talk about it. But of course, 2022 got pretty serious and pretty real pretty quickly. And it kind of, you know, that lighthearted angle of it was maybe not, not the right way to go. But, you know, I, I just try and tell it like it is every, every couple of weeks about markets in the short term, but then also try and focus on some longer term things that I'm reading and podcasts that I'm listening to. Try and weave through a bit of a theme around you know, longer term decision making and things that people might find interesting. And, you know, have a little bit of humor in there as well. Try and sometimes finish on something entertaining or lighthearted. Um, and, you know, it seems to be working. People comment. It's, I always love running into people who say they read it. You know, the stats seem to be pretty good. So you know, I've kept it going. You know, it, takes, it takes me a little bit of time, but it's nice to have a target like that every couple of weeks. A lot of people say that. So it's like a forcing function to help you think about what to read and what, and what you're enjoying. And you, know, you bookmark stuff and I say, oh, yeah, that's one for the newsletter. And even, even my wife says to me, like, maybe that's one for the newsletter sort of thing. <laughs> and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's nice to have that, I think. It, it works for me. Well, both uh, Andrew and I are followers of that newsletter. And of course, of your very good podcast. And going back to the podcast, which we really recommend to our listeners, is there anything in particular that you have learned from those conversations that you have incorporated into your own decision-making process? Yeah, I mean, so much, uh, so, so many things. I mean, I'm, I'll, I'll go through a few specifics, but one interesting point was we ask all of our guests what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? Um, I love that question because I think whenever you ask about underappreciated, you're sort of nudging someone to think a little bit second level thinking. It's kind of like not just what's important, but what's underappreciated. But the most popular answer we get to that is how hard and how complex investing is, which is not surprising. People say, you know, even the best investors only get it right 55% of the time or whatever. Even the best investors get it wrong a lot. It's very hard. Interestingly, another popular answer we've had to that is how easy it is. You, know, you can invest in a passive fund, global diversification, five basis points, whatever the charges are, buy and hold 20 years later. And that's been a very, very effective strategy for, for almost all time periods. 
And I love that tension between those two answers. What's the most unappreciated thing? How hard it is, uh, but also how easy it is. <laughs> and, but I think that is the, inherently the tension in, in investing in that it is very hard to, to outperform, but you do have that kind of central baseline counterfactual that you can't always go back to, which is, which is a passive approach, which is sort of much easier. So that's something that I've, I think is important context for all investment decisions, actually. And it's something that I've, I've said to, to my clients quite a lot. And I think it is, it is quite helpful because you can sort of get tied up in that. A couple of the specifics to, to, to point out, I mean, you mentioned Joe Wiggins, but I think before we've, we've had him on and I, the points he made around the decision-making environments really stuck with me. And for me and for my clients, when we say environment, we often mean things like the report you're reading. So what's on page one of report one that you're opening up at your quarterly meeting? What is on that first page? And I just think that's so underappreciated in terms of how powerful it is. Like oftentimes it might be something like some spiel about what the Federal Reserve did three months ago and a long build up about market background and stuff. And that's framing you to think about things in a certain way. It's, it's emphasizing that that's what's important when maybe it's actually not what you know, the investor should be thinking about the first thing. So the environment in terms of what you're reading and then even the way you set yourself up in committees, you know, my, my clients will often have an investment committee, a trustee board, different compositions, different sizes. All of that, I think, plays into the environment that, that you set for yourself, which I think there's a lot of decision making that, that flows from those sort of things. Um, so there's a couple of examples, but I've been very fortunate to have some good conversations and taken a lot out of it. We had Jake Taylor on the podcast twice, and he once made the reference that if you tried really hard at the beginning of the year to underperform, it would be very hard to do it, to blow yeah. up in a big way. Yeah. Like if you would have said, I don't know, I think he was making the point that at the beginning of 2020, say, if I'm going to invest in that auto company that is not making money, and it's going to for sure going to blow up because um, production is not there or whatever, and that person would have invested in Tesla, that person would have done really, really bad yeah. if, he, if he would have really tried to underperform. And I think that that acts a lot yeah. very well. well, well that. That, and that's a test, isn't it? The <laughs> likes of Annie Duke and Michael Mobison talk about that as a test for the trade-off between luck and skill yeah. in an endeavor. Yeah. is can you lose intentionally? Yeah. And if you can lose intentionally, then it's a high degree of skill in that particular field. Whereas if you can't, it shows that there's actually quite a lot of luck in, involved as well. Yeah. So many rabbit holes we could dive down there with luck versus skill and uh, short time frames versus long time frames. Something really trying with me, what you just said was, I was thinking about the, the investment reports that clients get. And I think mm. you know, so often, irrespective of what the fund is trying to do, the first thing a client will see is a quite generic market overview of what exactly. happened in the last three months, exactly. which doesn't necessarily set the tone at all well for what the, what the fund managers are actually trying to achieve. Uh, it's really interesting. I'll ask you about, we come back to biases. And as you know, this is a podcast all about decision making. I'm really interested just to dig into what you believe you can glean when you meet a fund manager in person and you have a conversation with them versus looking at the data about how they behaved and the decisions that they've made in the past. And I guess a kind of follow on to that is, you know, how do you go about you know, accounting for your own biases when making a decision after meeting a fund manager? Yeah. Well, I mean, great, great question. And in terms, of the, <clears throat> in terms of the data versus meeting a manager, clearly yeah, both are really important. I do think that data... 
it's important, but it's, it's more limited than is often thought. I think often there's this idea that you know, just look at the data and it will tell you everything you need to know. And maybe, maybe if you're, say, an equity manager with a 30-year track record, which I know your team probably does actually have, that I think the data probably is quite meaningful. But that's not the case a lot of the times. Like most, a lot of the funds have less than a 10-year track record, so it's really been in often just one market environment. It might be managing across asset classes, so it's a bit harder to see what the benchmark ought to be. Maybe it's doing something in credit where it's not really trying to outperform. It might be more buy and hold. So the data often isn't as helpful as you think. But of course, there is some information there. I think what you glean by meeting a fund manager, you're, what I'm trying to get is, is sort of how, they, how they're thinking about particular areas. What's their framework for kind of sort of approaching things? And two things you definitely get from meeting a fund manager that I do think matter. It's a sense of humility. Are they being honest about what they've really got wrong versus where they've just been unlucky? Uh, and a sense of self-awareness. Are they sort of self-aware about some of their own biases and things like that? Obviously, that, that won't come through in, in, in sort of data at all. But, but I, I do think that is that is quite important. You know, there's a classic trope of the sort of fund manager who's just constantly railing against QE or something and saying, oh, you know, the Fed, it just shouldn't, it shouldn't be allowed. It shouldn't have happened. It's not happening sort of thing. And you get that sort of reality distortion sometimes, but you will get that humility and self-awareness sense from, from meeting manager in person. And then, yeah, also how, how they're thinking about particular things, which is a more rounded perspective than just um, sort of looking at how they've acted. But key things you'd want from the data are, all, the, all those classic things around, are they doing what you what they initially told you they were going to do when you gave them that money? So the style drift, for example, being a classic one, you don't want them being a tourist into new areas. I've all seen managers sort of trying dabbling in sort of a bit of high yield or a bit of derivatives or something, um, or, or whether they're more taking more illiquidity or just taking more risk than they have been before. All of those things, I think, are important, and you can get quite a good handle on that from the data, as well as just putting current performance into context. You know, if managers underperforming, it's, it's helps to know, is this the worst underperformance I've ever seen? Or is it, is it top three? Is it not even top 10 sort of thing? I think simple things like that. So I, I think both are important, um, but, but often it's maybe a little bit exaggerated how much you get from data. Do you have a preference for looking at the data first or, or meeting, going into a fund management meeting quite cold um, and this comes back to the second part of the question about biases. Um, mm. Yeah, how, how do you think about that? I would. I tend to think you want to look at the data first. I think you want to have that as your sort of baseline and be able to explore that a little bit with the manager, because otherwise you're a little bit vulnerable to them picking off particular favourable data points that suit their story and being influenced by those. Um, so I think there are some basic questions that you want to check off by just looking at the data, and then you can use the actual time with the manager to explore more how they think about things rather than getting them to recite what their trailing standard deviation or something has been or what their largest drawdowns are, which is something you ought to be able to work out and just, yeah, sure. just know yourself. I think. How do you manage not being biased by meeting the person? <laughs> yeah, well, what a great question. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll let you know when I figured that one out. <laughs> I think that is absolutely uh, an, an issue and, and a risk. And of course, it's true that, that charismatic, persuasive people uh, are persuasive and, and get to influence us in ways that they may be slightly undeserved. I think that is the real thing. And, and you know, I think the more you're able to frame the questions yourself a little bit, so you're not just giving them a stage to kind of you know, hold forth, you're kind of trying to yeah, frame, frame it yourself, put the questions you want to put, try and interject a little bit and kind of 
just drill a little bit deeper, I think are all little things that can help. But I can't claim to have a, a monopoly on how to do that. That, that is hard, right? We're all humans. Let me change the question a little bit. Are you able to tell the story and the narrative relative to the reality? Yeah, I think, well, you hit a really important point there, which is this sort of tension between story and narrative and kind of objective facts. And I suppose one thing that I've, I would say one, one big thing that I've changed my mind on during my career is just the importance of story versus objective uh, sort of facts. And of course, from my personal perspective, you want to have both on your side if you're making a case. You know, in, in the past, and I think a lot of people fall into this trap of thinking, well, I've got all the facts, I've got the data, so I don't need to worry about story. And that that is absolutely the wrong way of approaching something because you'll undersell it. You risk underselling it if you don't have the story as well. But of course, on the flip side, once you're aware of the power of stories, it means you can be a little bit alert to how others are deploying them and just making sure that you're not having the wool pulled over your eyes by a story that then isn't supported sort of by the facts as well. So I think I used to have this inherent kind of Uh, inherent sort of knee-jerk pushback against stories and kind of like just dislike them because I suppose you feel that someone's trying to influence you in maybe a sort of a malign way, whereas I've probably nuanced my position on that a little bit over the years to say, well, they are actually really fundamentally important ways of communicating, but you need to educate yourself to understand when you're potentially at risk of being a little bit drawn into a story and when it's actually a helpful device for making a, a something a case that is supported by the data. I think two things come to mind. Number one, And Duke told us in one of our podcast sessions that some people either take the outside view as being the most powerful thing for some others is the inside view. Actually, the most powerful thing is the combination of both. Mm. The outside view, the base rate is more powerful when you combine it with the inside view, whatever you, your own, your own knowledge of a situation. And the other thing that comes to mind is the fact that Warren Buffett has built this brand and image of being this one person that sit or sat in his studio just reading and made all of these decisions by just reading. But he was, he has been throughout his career, this massive networking person. He just went out and met a lot of different people, which probably shaped the, the or form an opinion or helped him form an opinion based on what he was reading, which mm. is, uh, which I guess it's a, it's a sort of a skill. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think one, one, one point I always come back to in investing is, it's very natural to want to have some unifying narrative of everything that's going on at the moment. So to be able to tell some story that explains why interest rates are where they are and inflation is where it is and unemployment and, and geopolitics and weave it all together. And it's very tempting to try and do that, but it's not actually really necessary to do that to be a good investor. And in fact, doing that could actually be a bit of a distraction from, from, the, from stock picking effectively. If you're trying to pick a portfolio of 50 or 100 stocks, I personally don't think you need to have a unifying view of the whole global macro economy and what, what's going on in order to be able to do that. But it can be very persuasive when people come along with these sort of unifying views kind of things. So I, I suppose it's back to that point around focusing on the right things in, in your, your investing environment, deciding what's important. You've mentioned your uh, newsletter recently, but you will correct me if I'm wrong if that was not the case. Uh, you made a reference to Morgan Housel, who's someone yeah. that we have uh, enjoyed reading very much in the team throughout the last few years. And he had this great piece about uncertainty. He was yep. making the point that there's this perception that uncertainty changes. Sometimes uh, the future looks more uncertain. Actually, uncertainty is always the same. 
the world, the future is always uncertain. There are no degrees of uncertainty. Yeah. And so how do you help your clients prepare for uncertainty and make better decisions? And what tools can you help them with? Yeah, I mean, I, I love Morgan's work. I think it's, it's brilliant. I've, I've read a lot of his stuff. Um, and I, I recognize the piece you're talking about. I think he does a really good job of just trying to remind people of that. Because um, he, he writes these beautifully written pieces, which often are fundamentally generally saying similar things, which is basically that point. You know, uncertainty is always there. It's not, it's not effective to try and kind of minimize it or take it away kind of thing. Um, but but how, do, how do I help clients with uncertainty? I, honestly, I think one of the things that the sort of actuarial consulting, investment consulting profession has maybe um, gone a bit overboard on over the last 20 years that I've seen is trying to sell a little bit of um, a little bit of a false sense of security to clients. And th that can be quite tricky. You know, for example, I've seen expected returns quoted to two decimal places sort of thing, right? That's maybe a silly example, but clearly you don't know your expected return to two decimal places. That's one example, but also risk models and seeing sort of risk models saying, well, you can reduce your risk by 0.1 by moving from this to this. And it's, I kind of feel, I think that's a little bit of a, a false sense of, of security in, in terms of that. So I think the first thing is to recognize that a lot of, I think a lot of the industry, investment industry writ large has maybe a little bit predicated on trying to deliver um, a false sense of security more than is really justifiable. And so you've got to work quite hard to unwind that and, and really prepare people by um, saying things like what Morgan was saying. But I do think that risk models have a role in that, of course, because if you can say to someone, well, my risk model says your portfolio um, in, a, in a negative market environment going to lose 20 million. So that's, that's what we should be prepared for. That's what we should be ready for. I think you can brief people to sort of um, get used to that idea. And then it's not as sort of shocking when it comes. And that obviously goes look back to sizing and position sizing and that sort of stuff. I think all of that is really useful to try and ensure that when those you know, shocks come, that they're actually not quite as unexpected as, as they might otherwise be and give people a little bit of, um, a, a little, little, prepare them a little bit for it in that way. And then also I think and this comes back to other things about investing, having a, some kind of framework that you're operating within, I think just gives a really good anchor for those, those sort of conversations so that you're not kind of, you know, because when uncertainty hits, you kind of, there's all sorts of things going on. You're kind of spinning, thinking, wow, have we got too much in the US? Have we got enough currency hedging? Have we got too, too much bonds, too little bonds, too much infrastructure? You know, there's a million decisions that could be spinning around in your head. Whereas if you can just constantly be anchoring investors to a framework which focuses on a small number of things, you're just going to have better conversations. Um, and those frameworks should focus on what you can actually do about, about it, of course, right? Which for an investor is you can make allocation changes, you can sack a manager, hire a manager, but obviously you can't change what the Federal Reserve is going to do or what stock markets are going to do tomorrow. So, and, and I, that's kind of obvious, obviously, when I say it, right? But I think it's just missed so often. People end up spending a lot of time on the Fed and what markets are doing and not enough on, well, actually, what, what can we do? What should we do? That might be nothing. When you try to communicate this to your clients, like you, if, if you come across someone that is too focused on the macro and what external forces, which are completely out of their control, are doing, you tell them, you try not to, that's noise, try not to pay that much attention to it. Do you find that that message comes across or it's so anchoring their own psychology and behavior and what drives them that it's very difficult to change? 
I think it can. I think you can work on it. I think people. I think people are amenable to, to to that. I think. I think. I think when you tell someone, look, that's noise. Don't focus on it. I think people do take that on board. They, they do sort of realize it. Um, but but yeah, you, it is something that you've got to constantly be pushing against when you're presenting an investment idea or something. You'll often get the kind of well, feels like there could be a recession next year. This feels like it could be a bit exposed to to a recession sort of thing. And it, yeah, it's that constant work of saying. We might have a recession next year, but that isn't something we can control, and I don't think we can really take a good view on that. So we we have to try and step above that, up to the kind of strategy level. So it's yeah, it's kind of constantly trying to pull people up to a more strategic level. Um, I, I think I think broadly it can be done, especially if you're working with a consistent group over time, and ideally a group that's of sort of roughly the right size to to, to that. Um, but yeah, I guess it's a common common story you'll hear from investment consultants there'll often be that one voice around the table that kind of says well but what if we go into a recession next month i've got some dodgy feelings about the next bank of england meeting kind of thing and everyone's like oh you know it's it's yeah it's, it's just reality people are gonna are gonna think like that i'm going to circle back to your newsletter and i'm going to quote something that you actually <laughs> said because your newsletter is so good i don't really remember how long this when exactly did you did you write this but i open quotes if the outlook seems clear as mud that's because it is and the shock truth is no one really knows what's going to happen price drives narrative a lot of the time not the other way around close quotes is there a conflict between the inputs and the objectiveness required to make good decisions and the narrative required to sell that decision to your colleagues and clients Absolutely, there is 100%. Yeah, and it comes back to that sort of point I was making earlier, which is that you've you've got to you've got to have both of those things ideally, right? You you want to have the objectiveness, um, you've got to have the objectiveness and the facts, and and you you also got to have a nice story to to sort of present it and help it land in, in people's minds, you know, cleanly and, and neatly. And I think people ought to pay attention to both of those things. As I said, I think there's a bit of a tendency in our industry to think that we're sort of um, these kind of um, I don't know, kind of um, very kind of impartial spreadsheet kind of um, technocrats who are just there crunching numbers and then the answer pops out and everyone will agree that's the answer and that's it. And that's not how the world works in any way. And it's certainly not how industry works. So I, I think one needs to be aware of both of those. Um, but then you also need to be conscious of situations where you're getting one of those without the other. And if, you know, the story, you can definitely go overboard on story, clearly. And it happens all the time in the industry whether that's you know, talking heads on, on, on TV. And, and that's where I was sort of getting at with that quote. I mean, people are always trying to construct a narrative to explain away the uncertainty that's in the world. That, that's a natural human tendency to want to do that. It's a natural tendency to want to listen to people who seem to be doing that. Um, but often the reality simply is, yeah, it's clear as mud. No one knows what's going to happen. <laughs> but that's okay because I don't think investors need to be able to predict the future. As, as I once said before, that a passive global portfolio done perfectly well, perfectly great investment. So if you can't predict the future, you can still be a very successful investor. Um, arguably, a lot of the most successful investors haven't tried that hard to predict the future, just taking a diversified position in things they believe in um, and trying to screen out some of that noise is, is actually a very effective thing. So yeah, I, th I think people can get very focused on trying to pick the person who's got the right kind of unifying explanation that takes away all that uncertainty from the moment. Whereas it can be better just to acknowledge that well, there's always going to be stuff going on, uncertainty. I mean, there is a lot of bad stuff going on this year for sure. That I'm not trying to minimize that. And it is an exceptional year in so many ways. But as I say, investors don't need to see the way through all of that, I don't believe. There's a way forward with investing that doesn't involve 
needing to know the, know the future. You touched on, on the role of models uh, yeah. question earlier. Um, and it's, uh, it's really interesting, and that balance between the, what the model is telling you to do and what yeah. your insight or intuition is telling you to do. I know that earlier in your career, you've been very involved in develop, developing the models that you know, underpin uh, asset allocation decisions. This is quite a simple question, really. Is uh, The first off is, you know, what actually makes a good model? And you know, should you ever overrule them with qualitative insight? And, and if so, when? When should you do that? Yeah, what, what a great question. It's probably one of those things that I've changed my perspective on a little bit through my career as well. You know, if you'd spoken to me maybe sort of 10 or 15 years ago, I probably would have said, you know, more complicated model, the better. You know, yeah. let's, let's crack open MATLAB and like C++ and, you know, 10,000 lines of code, let's do it sort of thing. But I would say at this point, I think a simple model is actually really, really helpful because what you want from the model is a framework, a common framework and language that people can get on board with that just, that just gives you a... A foundation for your investment conversations. So that might be something like value at risk, right? We'll see much criticized yeah. uh, statistic, but I still think there's, there's value there. And it is a good framework because people can say, well, if we make this change, does it change our value at risk or not according to your model? Um, and hopefully you can answer the question. Hopefully you can give an intuitive explanation of why that's the case and people understand that. And that actually is a helpful conversation. Obviously, another very common model is what's the expected return of an investment portfolio. And again, you can give an intuitive thought through explanation of that. And that is also, I think, quite a good framework because you know, it then anchors your decision because you can say, well, what return are we aiming for? Is this investment decision going to move our expected return up or down? Um, so you know, the directionality of a, a change is important. And also, those they can help you size different things, especially on, on the risk side. You know, I think a classic mistake asset owners do sometimes make is, is on sizing of asset classes or managers, making them too big or too small. So you know, all, all that being said, I think that you know, simple models that give you a framework for investing are, are really, really good. Models that are black boxy and just don't seem to give intuitive answers are more tricky. And one way that's manifesting itself a little bit at the moment, I would say, particularly in the defined benefit world, is a lot of defined benefit pension schemes have de-risked an awful lot over the last 10 years, as you might be aware. That's been the huge trend of the market is de-risking. And I think the risk models have broadly been helpful in doing that. They've broadly given the right, in air quotes, answers to that, which is they've suggested strategies that have reduced risk. But when you get down to that very lowest risk level, the sort of granularity that those models are working at is starting to maybe be put under a bit of stress. And there are other risks that are not in the model that are becoming quite important in that world. And then if you look just at the model, you could be making decisions that are maybe a bit questionable. So that's kind of to your second point. Should you ever overrule the model? I think potentially, if it's becoming clear that you're squeezing it to a degree that's a bit uncomfortable, and if there's other aspects that are you know are not really included in the model that you think you can sort of intuitively kind of weigh up a little bit, um, so, so I, I think I think models are useful. They can easily be overdone. That, that, that's the um, you know, someone said recently, good good, good things taken to extremes. I think it's like Morgan House actually, good things get taken to extremes in investing all the time, right? And yeah. I, I do think models is is one of them. So if you can manage that balance of getting the good stuff out of it and then knowing when you need to sort of just leave it and, and move on, I think that's that's the magic. So there's something about the allure of complexity in there uh, yeah, as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of you know. Uh, and even the narrative of the of complexity as well, you know, if you're selling something which seems like a very, very clever, complex solution, uh, there's something I think that humans are in inherently attracted to that. And it can be quite hard to say to people, actually, 
it's not that complex. You need to make yeah, it more simple. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think that, that that is inherent in the investment industry as well. It's inherent in, in consulting, I'll, I'll be honest. Okay. I've, I've probably been been subject to that for, for sure. And, and you know, if you turned up to a client with kind of one page of like a few scribbles and said, right, here's the answer, then they would be a bit suspicious. Whereas you turn up with a hundred page slide deck of all these different portfolios you've crunched and all the models you've run, then that sort of seems better. And, and um, it, it, it might be. So then some of that is, is worthwhile. Yeah. But I, I think, yeah, some, some of that complexity is for sort of for show and for effect. And, you know, that the thud factor of a hundred page slide deck <laughs> landing on a, a table lends the answer more credibility, which it maybe is a little bit undeserved because, yeah, it can lead you down some bad roads. I come to a question which our regular listeners will know well, because uh, it's something that, that we often ask uh, on our podcasts. We all know that outcomes of decisions uh, can be quite a lousy, you know, lousy teacher, uh, especially in investment, I think, and even more so when dealing with short timeframes. We were just talking about you know, luck versus skill uh, just earlier. So how do you have any models or um, or models is perhaps the wrong word given what, what we've just been talking about, but any sort of thought processes that help you only learn the right lessons uh, over time. Uh, and then I guess the follow-up question to that is, how do you then communicate those lessons to your colleagues and your clients effectively? Yeah, I, I think that is a real challenge actually in investing just because of the time scale that a lot of these things take place over. You know, market cycles are quite long, even people with quite long careers have only seen a sort of couple of market cycles. It might have been a long time since you saw I mean, look at inflation now, yeah. for example, right? There's very few people that have good sort of mental models of, of, of how to operate with it. I think that is difficult. I think the best answer I can come up with is, is trying to articulate a really small number of central guiding principles, investment principles, I think is really important. You know, I think if you, can, if you can nail down kind of less than 10 really key drivers that kind of capture what you think are the core lessons and maybe adapt them a little bit as you go along, then I think that is one of the better ways to try and really learn lessons and to try and really, um, yeah, really live those principles, as in put them you know, on the table when you're making decisions and stuff. And that's easier said than done, obviously. Uh, but I, th I think that that really helps. Then you can capture the right things. So the issue there is trying to make them useful and not just be kind of really obvious statements. Like you often see investment principles where you know it's something like more risk doesn't necessarily equal more return, sort of thing. And it's like okay, I get it, but like, isn't that a little bit of a truism kind of thing? You can get these investment yeah. principles that are more like truisms rather than kind of really usable things. But I think that's probably one of the, one of the better ways. Um, and you know, talking things through with colleagues a little bit, having a, that sort of pool of peers that you can kind of reflect on, you honestly reflect on events that have happened and decisions and whether it was sort of good or bad. But I, mean, I, I think reflecting on decisions is, is important and just not done enough in life generally. And I think, it, I think Annie Duke and Michael Moberson and others have made, again, made this point that having a decision log or a decision journal can be a really powerful thing. And you, know, you log your decisions at the time, very briefly state the reasoning, and then you can come back to them. I've sort of tried to do it myself and with colleagues and with clients. It's just very hard because there's something intrinsic, I think, there's something intrinsic to human psychology that kind of pushes you away from re reflecting on decisions because you might have made some bad decisions or you might then realize how much luck is involved in everything. Um, and so psychologically, it is quite hard to do, actually, surprisingly hard. We had Simon Evan Cook on the podcast, and we were so related to this. We were talking about probabilities, mm. and he has a framework where he thinks about it as probability buckets. Mm. And the interesting behavioral nudge there is if something isn't 100%, it forces you to look into that 10% of why you might be wrong. I guess the, how it can help here is 
it also forces you to put a probability on the decision as well, which I think is quite helpful because once you've made that decision, as humans, we often just then try and backfill the narrative of why, exactly. why it's a good decision. And it's also helpful when it goes wrong to say, was I calibrated right? Was there actually a 70% chance of success there? Or was I, was I kidding myself in some way? Based um, on just what you were saying, do you know this concept of resulting? It's uh, yeah. something that Danny yeah, yeah, talks yeah. about, this poker thing, where you are measuring the, the outcome by its end result. Yeah. Without taking it into account whether or not the process was good to begin with. And that's something that happens in investing all the time. Yeah, of course, absolutely. You make a decision, yeah, yeah. it went wrong, yeah. and then you base, you're judging that decision based on the outcome. And it's very difficult to change the behavior of people to make them understand that they are actually falling into resulting. And sometimes there are many events that have happened and you made decisions, and it will take months and even years before you can actually exactly. make That's the issue. a yeah. call yeah. on whether or not the decision was good. How can you help people be better at that? It, the timescale thing is the hardest thing there, I think. And, and, that, and you know, it, a lot of investment decisions, it's like, yeah, they'll come back in 20 years and have a look at, at, at sort of what's, what's happened. I mean, I, I think you can maybe try and narrow the timescale down a little bit. I think you have to in, in investing because th th there's a worry that if you, if you just simply shrug and say, well, we'll know in 20 years, then that's just completely useless. So I think you have to nail down a bit of a timescale, so like a be reflective on a kind of three to five year horizon maybe. I mean, some people will... will um, will disagree with me on that and say, look, that's just not long enough, that's not long term. But I, I kind of feel you have to tread some kind of middle ground over which you can sensibly look back and say, well, yes, this, this decision has worked or not worked over, over that period of time. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, broad, broadly, I agree with you that it's a problem and I don't think I really have any great solutions because I don't think... I don't think we're set out to be very reflective about that. People would much rather just take the resulting and sort of move on, really. And that sort of re reflection is not, is not that common. Um, but if you can find it, then I think those people are onto something really good. Dan, it's been a thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyable conversation. Before we let you go, we ask all of our guests two uh, signature questions. Right. First of those is, uh, can you give all of our, our listeners a book recommendation? Uh, and the second is an example uh, you can choose uh, from uh, any aspect of your life uh, on a bad decision that you made in the past that was due to bad process uh, rather than just bad luck. Mm. Well, um, you gave me good notice of these questions. I had a little bit of a thing. The, the, the books, I mean, so many, and I love asking um, our guests that question as well, and I've got so many good ideas from that. Um, I was going through a few this morning, but what, so the one I'll pick out, I read Dave Grohl's autobiography. Um, Dave Grohl was the drummer in Nirvana and the front man in the Foo Fighters. I read that at Christmas, and just a great book. It's incredibly reflective um, on, on his life, and um extremely well written and just almost um, a page turner from the get-go. The way he writes things is, is quite amazing. And if you share any nostalgia at all for the kind of 1990s era of, of music, you, you will absolutely love it. So that, that's maybe a slightly different kind of genre to maybe your other ones, I don't know, but that, that's kind of one to put out there. I, I have to say that every time that I, I see him perform, he's such a, an amazing musician and his career has been so outstanding yeah. from being the drummer of Nirvana to then creating Foo Fighters and the success that he's had with both bands and then being a drummer and then being a lead vocalist and a guitarist. It's just so well-rounded. Well, it is actually. Yeah, it's a really good point. And I didn't really grasp that until I was reading the book. But it, it, you could almost, it is a case of, sort of real kind of growth mindset in that he, he wasn't just 
didn't just continue in the vein of being a drummer. He did sort of move on from that. And um, yeah, the, one of the Foo Fighters albums, he recorded every part of it, the singing, the, the guitar, the drums, everything. And maybe he's, he's also, quite, I think, quite a, quite, quite a good, good person, yeah. good human being. And, and the book is just a really, really um, riveting read. Great insight into his relationship with Kurt Cobain, for example, and, and that particular era, which was obviously quite, um, quite something. And uh, the, the decision. The decision, yeah. yes. <laughs> I, I was actually chatting with my wife about this last night and trying to reflect. And um, I actually reflected on quite a few bad decisions and, and extracted some good life lessons out of them last night. So I should thank you for asking that question. You've given me a chance to reflect on some good life lessons. And I was wondering, what, yeah, which of them can I possibly admit to live, live on a podcast? And should it be a work-related one or not? But the, the one I settled on, and it's going to sound a bit random, but it's a, it's a case of a larger category of decisions. But take away pizza. Right, so it might sound a bit trivial, but it, bear with me because I think it's a category of a larger, an example of a larger category of decision. So, my wife and I several times recently have ordered takeaway pizza and been disappointed with it when it's come, and and, and why is that? And I think it's because it's an example of something where, and this is often a precursor of bad decisions. We failed to properly understand what was going to give us pleasure in that kind of moment. And we were wrongly influenced by perceptions of something, right? So I, I love pizza, right? And like, nice pizza in a restaurant. Maybe I've got a beer, a glass of wine, chatting to friends, a lovely evening. I, I love it. But you remove it from that situation and you have it at home and a lot of that drops away and you don't realize that a lot of the pleasure was down to those ingredients as well as the actual um, pizza. So I think that, that was one thing. You, you sort of just failing to uh, yeah, I, I understand what's really driving your pleasure in it out of a certain thing. And then the second one, because we've made that bad decision several times, you can see that it's a bad process because we didn't even ask ourselves, yeah. <laughs> what, what was the outcome last time we made this decision? It was a bad outcome. Don't make it again. So yeah, there you go. Uh, take away pizza. That's exactly like you know the uh, the rosé or the, the lager that you bring back from holiday because it was the yeah. sweetest tasting drink you ever yeah, had. And exactly you tried it at home and yeah. when you're not on the beach... <laughs> Yeah. Suddenly, it's this sweet, horrible. Uh... Yeah, and that's why I always, actually, Rory Sutherland uh, covers this really well. And I always say to my wife, I drink cappuccinos in Italy, and that's the only place because I had a cappuccino once in Italy, and my goodness me, it's the best coffee I've ever tasted. Um, and I'm not sure they make it that different. I don't know if they had some kind of different ingredients, but it was absolutely lovely. Um, and I, I don't want to try and spoil that by having cappuccinos in any other situation. Dan, thank you very much for coming to the Bali Perspective podcast. It was amazing. Uh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Hi everyone, if you've made it this far, then we have a quick update for you. With everything going on politically in the UK, including LDIs, we asked for Dan for an update. We caught up with him on especially the probability of events, including the prediction at the start of 2022, that yields would move by several basis points. Dan Mikoskas, welcome back to the Bio Perspective podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. And before you say anything, Many congratulations on the arrival of Sasha to the family. How is she doing? Uh, hey, yeah, thanks, Juan. Yeah, it's um, it's been great. It's been absolutely lovely. Yeah, my wife and I met, um, welcomed our, our our new son a couple of weeks ago now, and it's just, it's just been a lovely time. We're all really happy. So yeah, great, great to be back. Great to be here. And yeah, thanks so much for the uh, for the good wishes. Oh, sorry, I thought that it was a she, but it is. It's actually your your second son. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's our second son. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's fantastic. So. Thank you very much for taking a few minutes out, out of your paternity leave to uh, speak to us again. We are recording this bit a few days before we go live with our session, which we recorded yeah. a few weeks back. And yeah. we were talking to Andrew Williams and we thought that it would be such a, a shame 
not to talk to you again, given what has been happening with the pension market in the UK and this whole LDI crisis, as you seem to be one of the very few people that actually understand what's going on. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, could you please explain in very simple terms what exactly is LDI, what was meant to achieve, and why it has caused so much pain over the course of the last three weeks? Certainly, yeah. No, thanks for the opportunity to explain it a little bit. And I, and I think, look, the best way to sort of explain this without getting too technical or going on for ages is just to step back and look at some of the, the history of LDI, really. Um, and I think it, it's important for folks to remember that pension funds or defined benefit pension funds, they care a lot about two things. Their funding ratio, which is the percentage of assets divided by liabilities, and the deficit, which is the gap between the assets and the present value of liabilities. They care a lot about those two things. And what they found over the years, um, starting probably 20, 25 years ago, was that what was driving these things wasn't actually movements in the assets. It was movements in the present value of the liabilities because the liabilities were discounted back using bond yields. And those market bond yields taken from gilt markets, they would move around quite a lot. So this present value of the liabilities was sort of at the whims of the bond market, if you like. So that would result in these deficits, which moved around an awful lot, funding levels that moved around an awful lot. So really starting about 20 years ago, pension schemes started saying, well, hold on, can we do some kind of asset strategy that makes it a mirror image so that we have this mirror image situation where whatever the liabilities are doing, our assets does the same thing. Liabilities go up, assets go up, liabilities go down, assets go down. And if we do that, things like our funding ratio, things like our deficit will be much more stable. Um, and that's exactly what they did. And that's what LDI is. Um, and there's various ways you can do it. Of course, you can just buy bonds. That's the kind of most vanilla way of doing it. But, but as, as people know, the way most pension schemes did it was they bought some bonds and then they used derivatives to get access to more bonds in order to create that sort of perfect kind of mirror image sort of offset effect. So, so, so that's the situation you had. Pension schemes using derivatives to get access to more guilt in order to reduce the risks when viewed at it through their through, through their lens. So that's sort of the history. Um, what happened this year? Well, as, as people know, whenever you're running a derivatives program, you've got to think really hard about your, 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 your buffers that you have, your margins of safety effectively, because when um, derivatives programs go against you, you're going to start to lose money. Uh, and LDI programs you know, were always expected to, to lose money when rates went up. That's what happened. Of course, you've got the offset on the liabilities. So overall, pension schemes were fine. But what it does mean is that pension schemes have to shift collateral around, what's called collateral or the sort of um, money that they have to put up against these derivatives. They were going to have to shift that around. And again, they always knew that was the case. There were lots of plans to do that. But really, two things this year. One was the sheer move in long dated yields was so much higher than what's been seen before uh, over the course of the year. They moved up about four percentage points, 400 basis points. Um, that was so much higher than what's been seen before. So that caused problems. And then also the sheer speed of those moves over the min, just in the days after the mini budget, um, really just put a lot of operational pressure um, on that system, meaning that pension schemes were struggling to move that collateral around quickly enough. Um, and that, and that, that caused a lot of issues. Would you say that, I, I would have thought that the inception of this problem started a few years ago, maybe a decade ago, but you are 
that this is actually quite normal, quite a normal thing to do for pension funds. And actually the decision-making process to match assets and liabilities started 20 years ago. That's it, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And it's important to say, I think LDR has worked really well for a long period of time through previous crises. It worked well in the 08 crisis, for example. Some schemes had swaps with layman, turned out fine. Worked well through COVID. It's worked well through other market crises. But 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 this time, it, you know, it got tripped up by the fact that rates rose so much and so fast. One of my colleagues was making the point the other day that this was probably a reflection of a lot of people making decisions over the course of the last decade when interest rates have been suppressed and they are quite low. And a lot of people may be buying into assets at very low yields that are probably quite expensive. And now they are, now that things might be normalizing from an interest rate perspective, they are being caught off guard. Would you say that's a fair assessment of what happened? I would view it more as a sort of a, a big regime shift from, from this sort of low stable interest rate regime into this new regime that we now seem to be in, where they're higher and more volatile. I wouldn't so much view it in, in valuation terms, but uh, I was discussing some of these some of these sort of behavioral reflections. I was discussing them with Joe Wiggins actually over email. And I think you, you have this you know, the availability heuristic is, is real, right, where the, the characteristics of, an, of the environment you're in just become second nature to you almost and be can become quite deeply embedded in how you operate. They can become quite deeply embedded in how people learn about the industry. They can become deeply embedded in how you do your assets, how you set up your programs. And I do think there was a little bit of that. We'd had a long period of time where rates were very low and very stable, didn't really go up by very much. And I think you can look back and say, well, were there some behavioral characteristics going on whereby we, we looked at what was available, you know, the, the sort of yield moves that we've seen were very small. And then another behavioral characteristic that's quite interesting, I think, is this one, I think it's called probability neglect, where we actually don't, de we don't deal very well with low probability, high impact events, mm -hmm. because we do one of two things. We either sort of dismiss it completely, we just say, well, it's never going to happen, or we put way too much emphasis on it, and then we pursue things to, to take away that risk that, that are sort of disproportionate to the thing. It's actually really hard to get that one right. And, and so how that would have manifested itself, you know, I think people be honest, if, you, if you'd showed me a, a scenario test a year ago that said, hey, what happens if guilt yields rise by 400 basis points? You know, I think I would have struggled to take that seriously. I think a lot of people would have done as well. And um, yeah, I think, again, a part of the reflection is how to integrate those sort of scenario tests along with the kind of risk models that we have and that I've talked about before and how to challenge those models when, you know, when they, when you could be facing a new regime sort of thing. And it's easy now to talk about new regime, isn't it? That's the issue. But I always say no one rings a bell and like sends you a nice update to say, by the way, just so you know, regime's changing tomorrow. You know, you, 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 you just never know. So, um, you know, a whole load of behavioral things, I think, to sort of unpack that. Do you think, in your own opinion, that what happened is a failure of process? It's a difficult question. I mean, I, no, probably not. I don't think I view it in those terms, but you know, you, you could obviously look at the role I've had and say, well, he would say that, wouldn't he sort of thing, right? So <laughs> I, I, I view it as programs that were calibrated, that were designed in a certain way and the world has changed around them. And the, the way those programs were set up is, is, has proved to be um, has proved to be wanting in, in the sort of the world that we've moved into. 
so yeah, I, I sort of struggle to see it as a failure of process, but I think these are the sort of debates we need to have. The other point to make, I suppose, is just how systemic LDI has clearly become because of the sheer size of it. And that's sort of a tricky one, isn't it? Because you can debate the merits of LDI in each individual case, but if you, if you accept the individual pension scheme decide it's a good thing, then at what point does the aggregate of those individual decisions become something that actually becomes problematic as well is kind of, um, is another interesting point to, to sort of debate, isn't it? And just one last question. You mentioned that issue that, that we all have with probabilities and low probabilistic events. Yeah. It goes back to the Russian-Ukrainian uh, conflict. Uh, a lot of people before the, uh, the invasion actually happening were assigning a very low probability to the actual event happening. You are an advisor to many asset managers. How do you go about helping investors to think about that aspect a little bit better? Yeah, it, it, it is difficult. I, I think you've got to, all, all I can say on that, I think you've got to be having, you've got to be having regular conversations around it. And you've got to have a sort of regular familiar framework to be trying to discuss them within. Um, so now I think some of the risk models I talked about before, value at risk models provide a bit of that framework, scenario tests provide a bit of that framework. Um, but, but I think it's often underappreciated how it can just help to return to discussions of your current portfolio. You know, it's always very tempting to talk about what's next, what's the next thing we're allocating to, what's the next move we're doing. Whereas just returning to the current portfolio and exploring um, exploring different angles on it and, and sort of digging into it, I also think is something that's important to work into the process. Um, although that's easier said than done because it never seems like a priority, does it? When you've got, you know, you've, you've got regulations you've got to meet, you've got new allocations you want to make, that there's always other things that are squeezing in. So I think it's always, as always with investors, it's about trying to focus your attention you know, on, the, on the right things and ensuring that you're, yeah, that you're just having these sort of conversations. I, I think it is, yeah, you've got to appreciate that it's difficult to come to clear answers and that there's no one risk model that perfectly captures everything. That's another big lesson, I think, out of, out of what we've seen. You, you do have to try and sort of synthesize together a picture from traditional stochastic risk models, scenario analysis, intuition and stuff, but then also not be careful to go, to, to, to sort of go go mad on every single little risk because then yeah we as we all know if you think about every single little risk you, you wrap yourselves in bubble wrap and you never go outside sort of thing and and that's not a great place either is it so um that that's simply the, the the challenge at the heart of investing i think in many ways i think that we are closing this small session going back to the first question of our first session which is one of the reflections that you had from your podcast the fact that the answer that you get the most from people is that investing is just very difficult. Yep, I think uh, I think I'll stand by that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, thank you very much for coming back and explaining LDI and best of luck with your new baby. Thanks so much. Pleasure to chat to you again, Yuan. Mm-hmm.